In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, friends, welcome to Pentecost. The Spirit came down like rain. On this day, we celebrate history coming of age. Now, if you think about it, history begins by the decree of God the Father through the work of God the Son and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Now, what was God's purpose in creating the world? Why did God create everything? On the day of Pentecost, God at last begins to reveal the answer to that question. On the day of Pentecost, God reveals that the last days have finally come. God says, I am revealing my purposes to the world. Well, that's a pretty big canvas to paint on, isn't it? But I'd ask this question, rather than the theological one, let me ask it this way. What does the coming of the Holy Spirit mean to you, to me, personally? Let me invite you to take out this white handout that I've given you here. I think you'll find it helpful as we talk about this question. What does the coming of the Holy Spirit mean to me, personally? You see, many Christians simply aren't sure what they should do about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly how I was for many years. I had a full and loving encounter with the charismatic movement when I was in my teens. I was encouraged. I was blessed. I was even nurtured. And yet somehow I could not see how the various pieces of my Christian life actually connected with the story of the salvation of Jesus and this glorious encounter that I'd had with the third person of the Trinity. You see, I did not understand this because in my mind I had been separating things that rightfully belong together. And as the years went on, I began to discover, guess what? I wasn't the only person that was doing that, separating things that belong together. This is a problem among serious-minded disciples. Now, on the one hand, believers speak of the Holy Spirit as if it were the possession of just a privileged few. Sometimes you'll hear them talk to you. Now, if you were only just different somehow, then you'd have the Holy Spirit the way I do. And you'd know God like I do. But, you know what? On the other hand, so many Christians seem discouraged, powerless, joyless, guilt-ridden, or in fact, just bored, that you think, man, that can't possibly be what the normal Christian life is supposed to look like. You know, you think of the saints of old burning with the zeal of the Holy Spirit. And then you look around some of our churches and see some of the pickled sour pusses that inhabit these churches today and you think, 
Wow. You know what? The day of Pentecost must have been very, very, I mean very long ago. So the question is, how did we get in this situation? Well, for convenience sake and brevity this morning, we'll just blame the theologians, okay? Because theologians tend to separate things that rightfully belong together. If you go to seminary, you'll probably take two entirely different courses. One on Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And maybe months later, you'll take another course called Pneumatology, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's as if these two things, Christ and the Holy Spirit, could be separated from one another. But I'll tell you, the light began to dawn for me a few years ago when I reread Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Do you remember that we read that last week? Acts chapter 1, verse 5. I read it again with new eyes. And then I realized that the story of Pentecost does not begin in Acts chapter 2. The story of Pentecost doesn't begin in Acts chapter 1. The story of Pentecost begins in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. And don't forget that Luke and Acts are two volumes of one book written by the same author. Now, Luke 3, 16 says this, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. Now, Luke places this statement at the very front of the gospel because it is an announcement of what Jesus is coming to do. Now, what does John say? Does John describe Jesus' work this way? Does he say, he comes to die on the cross? Is that what John said? Does he say, Jesus comes to save your soul? Does he say, Jesus came so you could have access to get into heaven? But he doesn't say anything like that, does he? Now, how many here this morning have heard that phrase, the completed work of Christ on the cross? How many people have heard that? Heard that? All right, good. Bunch of Presbyterians this morning. Well done. All right. Now, I think that phrase, the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, is wonderful. It's a lovely phrase when you understand it to mean Jesus' ministry was to provide for your salvation in every possible way. There is nothing that human effort can do to add to it. If that's how you understand the phrase, well done. But on the other hand, it can be quite misleading. For while the work of Christ on the cross is complete, friends, it certainly is not over. The end point of Jesus' ministry isn't the finished work of the cross. It's not even the glorious day of resurrection. It is not his exaltation to the right hand of God. The end point of Jesus' ministry is for his people, that means for you and for me, to receive his powerful Holy Spirit. And until that happens, 
His work may be complete from the perspective of eternity, but I promise you, his work is not over. Christian, God wants you this morning to come alive. Now let's step back about 10 days before the first day of Pentecost, all right? And there, as Jesus is giving his last words to disciples, we get an inside look at God's original plan. Look at Luke 24, verse 49. I've given it to you on your handout there. Luke 24, verse 49. Jesus tells his disciples, he says this, he says, wait Stay in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost. On that day, you will receive, get this, what God has promised all along. The Old Testament prophet Joel says, this is what it looks like when the final days show up, the final days of God's plan for salvation. God will pour out his Holy Spirit. This has been God's plan from the beginning. So let me ask you this question this morning. Where does the work of the Holy Spirit begin in your life and mine? It begins at the moment of our salvation. Now, if you were to ask many a Christian, you were to say, hey, friend, what is the gospel? They might say, well, okay, Jesus, uh, he's the son of God. He showed up as a man. He worked great miracles. He died on the cross, and uh, oh, yeah, on the third day he rose again. Well, that's all great stuff. And it's all totally true. But as Theodore Roosevelt would say, well, bully for him. In other words, so what? So what? How does Jesus' death and his resurrection so long ago, how does that have anything to do with me? How can his work apply to me. And indeed, apart from the Holy Spirit, the cross is no more than a noble example of a good man come to a bad end. It is the Holy Spirit of God who takes all the benefits of Christ and applies them to your life and to mine. It is only through the presence of the Holy Spirit that we can say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and bully for me. Now see, John understood that. John understood that the end point of Jesus' ministry is for you and for me to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, let's take a minute, okay, and think about how this work of Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are intimately, and get this, 
inseparably connected. Okay? How are the work of Christ and baptism of the Holy Spirit intimately and inseparably connected? Well, let's ask ourselves this question. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? Well, you know, you'd think, wouldn't you, that in church, of all places, we'd have a pretty good answer for that. Wouldn't you think? I mean, especially since the church is in sort of the born-again business, right? Churches ought to be in the born-again business. But the truth is, we actually know much less about being born again than you might think. The truth is that our familiarity with the term born again blinds us to the fact that actually being born again is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. Now, you all know the passage. Everybody here this morning, I bet, knows the passage. John chapter 3, right? Jesus there, I've given it to you in your handout, John chapter 3, Jesus assures us that being born again is absolutely and unequivocally the work of the Holy Spirit. Get this. No work of the Spirit, no rebirth. Period. But, one time I was driving with my family coming over the Appalachians and we came through Tennessee. And what we noticed there, that the forest had just been ripped apart, torn up. And we're, you know, looking around, and it was totally evident that some sort of typhoon had passed through those mountains. Trees were uprooted, creeks torn up. But you know what? As to when, or how, or where that typhoon had come from, we didn't have a clue. Being born again is like that. See, some people, at the very minute they are born again, perceive themselves to be so. Others might think they know, but as life goes on, they find out maybe they're not quite as sure as they thought, that the process is more complex than they imagined. For to be born again is a great mystery. That's the first thing we need to know. Now secondly, Scripture teaches us, doesn't it, that being born again happens by grace through what? Oh, come on. It happens by grace through what? Faith. Faith, absolutely. But, note carefully, that faith does not originate from inside ourselves. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You and I did not wake up some morning and say, I love the smell of grace in the morning. I think I'm going to go out and get saved today. If the Holy Spirit had not first come to you and given you the gift of faith, then you and I would have continued forever just as we were dead in our trespasses and sins the Holy Spirit was at work in your life 
before you ever knew his name. Now, the third thing we can observe here this morning about being born again is that it includes a legal declaration by God. How many people have ever been in a courtroom? Been in a courtroom. Hope you were in the right place in that courtroom. <laughs> okay? In God's court of judgment, your sins have been exchanged for Christ's righteousness. You see, when you were born again, God made a declaration about you. He said that you have become Jesus' righteousness and Jesus has become your sin. Now, notice I didn't say Jesus carried your sin or he picked them up or tucked them under his arm or put them in a back, backpack and went to the cross with them. The scripture says he became your sin And you became his righteousness. That's what God has declared to be true about you. Okay, you got me here. If you're thinking, you might say, yeah, but what did that have to do with the Holy Spirit? If this is a transaction that's happened in God's mind... If this is a declaration that God wrote down in a book somewhere, what in the world does that have to do with me and the Holy Spirit? Well, if that's what you're thinking, an awful lot of Protestants have thought that way. And so it's not surprising that after a while, their religion becomes joyless and a burden. Why? Because they've reduced salvation and their relationship with God to that of the judge and the accused, the accuser and the offender. But such people, you see, forget that to be born again also means to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is indeed the baptism that Jesus came to accomplish. By reception of his Holy Spirit, you are sealed into your salvation. But wait, folks, there's more. Okay, I'm being funny. But in truth, there is more. Because your reception of the Holy Spirit also accomplishes another wonderful thing. You have been adopted as a spiritual child, a son or daughter of God. You see, not only does the judge acquit you of your sins and release you from the docket, the judge says, child, I love you. Come home to my house tonight rather than the jailhouse. That comes about because he gave you his spirit. And one more thing arises from this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is given you in rebirth. It is true that in the courtroom, God declares about you, he says, you are the righteousness of Christ. But you know what the problem is? We walk out the door of that courtroom. And as we go out the door of that courtroom, there's a mirror right there. 
and we catch a glimpse of ourselves. And you know what we see? Well, I don't care what the judge said. It sure looks like me, just the same. But as you're about to go out the door, the judge says, hey, wait a minute. You're not leaving here by yourself. I am sending my Holy Spirit with you to enable and facilitate the process of becoming, in fact, what I have declared you to be in law. Friends, today is the 1,984th celebration of the day of Pentecost. <laughs> celebration. <laughs> Paid him to do that. So I'd ask you this question. Through the centuries, this powerful baptism of the Holy Spirit has continued to work. So let me ask you this. How is the Holy Spirit continuing to work in your life this morning? What work is he doing in you? Do you sense that he's working at all? Well, it's a big question. But at least let me suggest for something, two things that apply to every single person here this morning. The first is this. We know that the Holy Spirit has. Notice the past perfective tense. The Holy Spirit has broken the stranglehold of the old nature over your life. Remember that old thing? Oh, the devil made me do it. Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember that. <laughs> well, that may be true, but it's only true because you chose to let him. Your old nature in the power of the Holy Spirit has been put to death. But note this. It's been put to death not in the sense that it doesn't exist anymore. It has been put to death in the sense that it is no longer your absolute master. Today, tomorrow, or next Friday night, you are free to choose to listen to the Holy Spirit and obey God's word, or you're perfectly free to listen to the old man and obey the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Holy Spirit has set you free to love God just as often as you choose to. Now secondly, in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you and I have been given strength and motivation to live our lives in a new way. What is that new way? That way is to organize and set up your life in such a way that we're spending our lives feeding the new nature and starving the old. Now some people don't do that, do they? They set up their lives quite differently, just the opposite. Feed the old nature, starve the new. Now, folks, this is where some of my charismatic friends get it quite wrong. Now, they're not wrong on their insistence of the importance and the necessity of the Holy Spirit in order to live new born-again lives. They're absolutely right about that. That's absolutely true. 
but they mistake how and in what way the Holy Spirit does that. You see, the Holy Spirit is in the process of nurturing you to become what God has already declared that you are in his books. Holy, happy, and perfect. But some people think, well, because I have the Holy Spirit, well, it's all down and done. It's done and dusted. It's all over but the fat lady singing. They live the Christian life as if it were perpetual spiritual Miller time. But you see, that is not how Paul taught new Christians to live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. I've given it to you there in your handout. 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now, the reason that so many Christians are tired or weary or bored is not because they do not possess the Holy Spirit, nor even all the good things that the Holy Spirit has for them. In fact, they possess them in abundance. The problem is not that they do not possess the Holy Spirit. The problem is the Holy Spirit does not possess them. Thank you, Chuck. You're absolutely right. Chuck and I were just discussing that yesterday. Spiritual transformation comes about as the result of allowing the Holy Spirit to fill and control the whole person. The whole reborn believer. Mind, character, and emotions. It comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it will only happen if we open up the door and set the conditions for him to do his work. Well, what does all this lead up to? Well, it leads up to this. In the weeks ahead, we're going to look at a lifestyle called spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation. How do we go about feeding the new nature and starving the old. It's a process whose end is glorious, actually becoming what God says is true about us. Now, you and I, Christian, have been born anew by the Spirit of God. So this morning, this Pentecost Sunday, I invite you to join with me for these next few weeks on this adventure of spiritual transformation. And I invite you to labor in the glorious power of the Holy Spirit to become all that God has for you, which is nothing less than the fullness of God himself. Amen.